Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is part two of a special edition of Fraud Eat Strategy in which we examine a major case, in this instance, the Siemens FCPA case, which is remarkable not just because of the scale and complexity and really audacity of the corruption itself, but also the equally amazing compliance remediation that followed. Our guests are Kara Brockmeyer from Debevoy and Plimpton, who for 17 years was the head of FCPA enforcement at the SEC, and Peter Solmson, who was general counsel and a member of the managing board who was hired for the specific purpose of reforming Siemens following the revelations of the corruption that gave rise ultimately to their enormous FCPA settlement. Welcome back, Kara and Peter, and thank you for joining me today. So Siemens had to abruptly end the payment of bribes that had really been institutionalized over the course of decades. And insiders and stock analysts must have assumed that the company was going to suffer a significant drop-off in business once that all was curtailed. But that's not really what happened, was it? Peter, when did the company first realize that the organizational reforms were actually improving the company's financial performance? Well, let me say at the outset that Peter Lerscher and I knew that that was going to happen. I mean, bribery is expensive, and we knew it wasn't necessary. We'd been competing against even from the GE side where we didn't pay bribes. And we, you didn't have to pay bribes to get more than your fair share of the business. So it, it was no great surprise to us. And I would say that we had something like 55 different P&Ls, and they all had different cycles. So you, know, you didn't see results right away in all of them. But certainly, for example, in the healthcare business, which is a short cycle business, you know, we, we didn't lose any business. We continued to get more in our share, more than our fair share. And business profitability went up because you had a lot of expenses that you didn't have to pay when you got rid of distributors and agents, whether or not they were paying bribes. Generally, pretty quickly across the company, the business, the sales guys gained confidence, you know, when they didn't lose the transaction, when they said no. There was a guy who we had something like 100% market share of light rail around Bangkok. And the guy who ran that project told me that he just told his guys to say, when, when the hand came out, we don't do that. I don't do that. They, did, they, they weren't supposed to, he told them, don't say compliance won't let me do it. They, I don't do that. And they put the hand away. And as that happened, people gained confidence. And you know, I've written an article about this. We are competitive performance against GE actually improved. So as part of its settlement with the US and uh, German government, Siemens committed to paying $100 million over the course of 15 years to nonprofit organizations focused on anti-corruption. How has the Siemens Integrity Initiative helped level the playing field? Well, that came out of a settlement with the World Bank, which was threatening to debar us for 10 years. And that, that has a, a complicated history. But as the product of a resolution of that disagreement as to what the appropriate remedy ought to be, the idea was developed that we would put money into a fund that we would use in the markets where we knew the players to enhance sort of the corruption, anti-corruption environment. And in some places on the capacity building, we invested in or we supported the a new anti-corruption academy, which is based in Austria, which trains 
professionals from around the world on how to be better enforcers in the countries that come or the structures that make corruption. Things like collective action. The countries are all very different, but we understand from players out in the field that we made a number of important initiatives possible that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And we're very proud of what it has achieved. Another first in the Siemens investigation and settlement was the fact that a prominent German was appointed as monitor as opposed to maybe what normally would have happened, where a former DOJ attorney, for example, would normally have been appointed. What was the significance of the appointment of Dr. Theodore Weigel as the Siemens monitor? It was hugely important to Siemens, and it really a key aspect of our success in changing the culture. I had seen what monitors could do both domestically in the United States and overseas, the damage they could do. And I think it was particularly prevalent uh, where American monitors very ham-handedly came into European countries and I think unintentionally caused a lot more damage than us. This has never been done before. So early on, I raised this issue with people at the Department of Justice and the SEC and really sort of a justice call, I guess. And, And they were open to the idea. And so over the months when we were negotiating the outcome, I kept bringing it up and I was interviewing prominent people in Germany and elsewhere to think about being a monitor. And Weigel was the perfect choice. A, he was Bavarian. So a lot of the Siemens employees are in Bavaria. And of course, he'd been the finance minister for decades and an incredible reputation for probity. And most of all, he thought it was an important thing to do, as he said to the Department of Justice, this is important for Germany that we get this right. Corruption is a terrible thing for our industries, and I want Germany to get better at this. And if I can play a role, I'd like to. Inside Siemens, they had huge credibility. I mean, they didn't trust me. I was an American. I'd come from GE. They thought I was an instrument of the SEC, you know, American industrial policy to harm German companies. It was all kind of junk in the press and personally the internet. But Weigel, I mean, he was, you know, homegrown hero. And, you know, when he spoke to them from his heart, about how important it was that Siemens get this right as a, as a beacon for other German companies, it really helped us. So that was a really critical aspect of our turnaround, and, and I'm still grateful to him. He did a fantastic job. So prior to the FCPA settlement and remediation that followed, Siemens was an exceedingly complex matrixed organization. And they took the extraordinary step of streamlining the company into three primary divisions. Why was this simplification of Siemens structure important to the company's ability to rebuild the culture? Well, to have accountability, you have to have visibility. And one of the problems we had at Siemens with complexity is we had a a lot of different organizations that sort of overlapped. In particular, we had sort of a designed conflict between the country organization, you know, which is sort of the ultimate sales operation in a particular country and a sort of vertical product company. And we needed to get those simplified in a way that you could see what was really going on and to do away with the kind of organizational compromises that had been really tolerated to cater to the particular personal desires of some leaders. We had to have a visible, uniform way of looking at things in every P&L. And, you know, once things were visible, they were easier to control. Thanks, Peter. So incentive compensation within some organizations, such as sales commissions, can lead to perverse behavior left unchecked. Early during its compliance remediation, Siemens linked performance evaluations to compliance. And 13 years later, 
that's still an industry practice that is not in place in many organizations. How effective was that change? And why do you think so many companies have been slow to adopt this practice? Well, I think the, the reason that there's been slow or, or no adoption is because it's hard. I mean, people understand this as paying bonuses to leaders for doing the thing they should be doing anyway. I mean, well, how do you reward behavior you expect? You expect behavior to be good. So finding the right targets, which measure the right things and don't appear to be just simply rewarding people for doing what you expect them to do, I think it's the tricky part. I mean, punishing bad behavior is pretty easy. I mean, everybody does. And we did that course too. But the things we focused on were communication. I mean, one thing you can measure is does a leader communicate about compliance, about ethics, about good behavior? And that's something you can measure. And another way to measure it, which we found very useful, is service. I mean, you do... 360s where you do surveys where you ask employees, do you believe it when your boss says that there's no excuse for paying bribes? Or do you believe it when he tells you he's going to fire people if he catches them doing the wrong thing? And if the employees respond in anonymous surveys, they don't believe it. They think it's all eyewash. Then you know that the communication has been poor. So I think there's kind of a, a misunderstanding about what putting clients into the performance review does. It's Coming from the top, it's taking action promptly, it's, it's all that kind of thing, but it's not necessarily, you know, you get paid more if you're more ethical. Scott, I would just add to that, that I think we've seen the government recognize that this is a very effective way of encouraging compliance and testing the sort of compliance culture at the company. DOJ's evaluation of a corporate compliance program, they talk about both the disciplinary actions, but also the incentives and specifically tell companies that they should be looking at these issues. And then, in fact, they call out companies that have made compliance a significant metric for senior executives. I think Peter hit on exactly the right issue, which is in the abstract, it can be hard to figure out how to measure this, right? Because it's easy to discipline somebody when they violate the law, right? It's like training your dog. When they do something bad, it's easy to see. It's catching them when they're being good. And how do you incentivize that? But I think Peter's idea of the 360 reviews and getting them the anonymous surveys of do you believe your managers when they say they're going to take this action? Have you seen any instances of improper conduct? And do you feel comfortable reporting those to your managers? And then also things as simple as do all of the employees in this particular group under this manager finish their compliance training on time? Do you have 100%? And does that officer do it on time? When I was at the SEC, one of the things that senior officers got graded on was how sort of how you complied with ethics and things like that. And that was part of it. And let me tell you, that is also a really good way to incentivize people to get their compliance training and to take it seriously. You say, you're not getting your bonus. Or there was one company that said they used to go around and say, paychecks aren't coming until you get your compliance training done. And you'd be surprised how many people all of a sudden say, that's the most important thing on my docket for the day. Does tend to order the mind, doesn't it? So I'm going to switch topics somewhat. The two of you are chair and vice chair of the non-trial resolutions of bribery cases subcommittee of the International Bar Association. And the subcommittee is a byproduct of the OECD's 2017 recommendation that OECD member countries consider passing legislation that allows for the use of non-trial resolutions for bribery cases like we use deferred prosecution agreements here in the United States. What is meant by non-trial resolution and why is it important for OECD member countries to pass laws that enable their use to settle corruption enforcement actions? 
I'll approach this from the standpoint of back in my old job from the U.S. government, why it's important for the U.S. government. And then I think Peter will have a comment on the, the corporate side of it. One of the best ways to level the playing field for American companies is to encourage more enforcement of anti-corruption laws around the world. And one of the best ways that you can do that is give companies an incentive to come in, report on themselves, and to resolve something short of a death sentence, which is you know a criminal trial and conviction. I think this can be something that is a little bit of an anathema, especially in a criminal context, but that once countries realize that by doing these types of what are called non-trial resolution, which is anything short of going to trial and getting a conviction. So it's any type of settlement. In the U.S., it's it's, uh, non-prosecution agreements, more frequently deferred prosecution agreements. It's the settlement orders that you enter into with the SEC if you're a public company. And one of the things that the U.S. government has figured out is that that not only is better than putting a lot of people out of work, if you convict as a criminal organization, a large company a la Arthur Anderson, but it also allows the government to leverage their resources because they're not spending five years trying cases against companies. They're able to resolve it, get those remedial measures in place, and then move on. I'll chime in and say what we're trying to do through this project is to institutionalize what Siemens did on sort of an ad hoc basis in 2008. I and mean, it was the first, as Kara said earlier, the first sort of globally coordinated settlement of the foreign bribery case. And increasingly, as other countries are enforcing their anti-corruption laws, if you're at a company, you're faced with this incredible proliferation of potential cases against you. What you want to be able to do is settle it at one time. But more importantly, what you want to do is you want to have the right incentives to, when you find it, disclose it. You're turning your CEOs into whistleblowers, basically, because if the incentives are right, if I find something in my company and I know I can walk it into Cara in her old job and settle it at a reasonable price quickly, I'd much rather do that than stonewall, hide it, worse than that, you know, defend it for years and spend a lot of money on lawyers and forensic accountants and FTI in order to defend myself. And I can tell you that that worked for me at GE and at Siemens, where if we found something, we knew there was a reliable process in the U.S. by which we could walk it in and sort of get credit for having found it, stopped it, punished the wrongdoers, cleaned up, and, and we would end up paying a much, much lower fine if there was a fine at all. In many countries, that's not legally possible, or it's technically not legally possible. What we've discovered, it's going on anyway, because you know it's, it's a sensible thing to do. And what Kara and I and our committee are trying to do, and I think we're making tremendous progress. Happily, Kara used to be a member of the group that writes these rules. We're trying to get uh, the OECD to issue rules that prosecutors in all OECD member countries and in other countries can look to for guidance on how to do this in their own country and how to cooperate with the very likely concurrent and congruent investigations going on in other countries. And again, you're creating an incentive for the companies that are going to see this stuff first, you know, in their compliance processes and their audit processes with whistleblowers, instead of hiding things, or instead of trying to pretend they didn't happen, walk it in, get it solved for a, a reasonable price. I mean, the last thing I did when I was uh, working at my last employer was we had a problem. It was, was not a corruption problem, but it was a potential $300 million exposure. We found it, fixed it, walked it in. The whole thing ended up costing us $300,000. At that point, your colleagues in the executive committee turned to you and said, how many more lawyers do you need? How much more compliance do you want? You keep that up. Because, you know, they knew their operational guys had screwed something up. And we were able to settle it for, you know, I don't want to say peanuts, but a small amount of money because we fixed it. And that's what the government wanted. So that's what we're trying to institutionalize. 
So a number of countries have amended their laws to allow for NTRs. Have there been any noteworthy cases yet in which NTRs were a factor outside the United States? One of the things that I was happiest to see when I was at the SEC is that we started to see the rise of the use of some form of non-trial resolution in a lot of other countries. So not just Germany, the UK passed their own version of a deferred prosecution scheme and started using that. We've now seen France use their equivalent of it called the CGIP, in addition to Siemens, which sort of was the first. And then we had Petrobras, which was the next time that you saw the Brazilians figure out how to do it under their legal scheme. But then with a Vimplecom set of cases, that was really Norway figuring out how to do it. And for each of these, as Peter said, one of the things that I saw when I was in the government that I think Peter has seen on the company side is that it's difficult for a lot of countries that have never had this form of a resolution to figure out how to do it, often because you're dealing with individual prosecutors. And it really does take a certain sort of creative, motivated prosecutor to figure out how to do these. And so one of the things that we're hoping to do with this IBA project is to allow other countries that haven't adopted this yet to learn from what other countries, including the U.S., have done. And it is exactly the right time to do it because the number of countries that have either proposed or are currently considering some form of non-trial resolution is higher than it's ever been. And Kara, I think, put her finger on it. All of these early settlements required a certain amount of courage on the part of prosecutors, some of whom had never done it, and frankly, some imagination on the part of the U.S. prosecutors on how to cooperate. And it really shouldn't be, we shouldn't rely on sort of individual skill and courage. There ought to be an institutional framework that any country can use and that which companies can rely on. You can look at these guidelines and know this is how prosecutors are supposed to treat you when you walk something in. You're more likely to walk it in. So, I mean, this is such important work that the two of you are doing with the International Bar Association. What else is important for our listeners to know about NTRs and your work with the OECD and the IBA? This is very quickly going to become a domestic, not an international effort. I think that I think these guidelines will issue from the OECD. We know there are drafts, we've seen drafts, and, and they're very promising. And when that happens, then that guidance has to be implemented and incorporated in corporate practice and in legal institutions and rules. And that's going to take a lot of work. So I think familiarizing yourself with the IBA sort of outline, if you're in this kind of work, uh, and being prepared to participate, because it's going to be a huge, it's going to be a sea change in the environment of how corporations deal with crime that they discover, not just bribery. Because what happens is this starts with bribery and then everybody else wants to do it too. The tax guys want to do it. Everybody wants to do it. The environmental guys want to do it because it makes such sense. So this is going to turn out to be a template. As one of the leading prosecutors in France said, when this was started in France formally, he said, this has changed the dialogue between us, the prosecutors and the bar. It has changed the dialogue. So I think there's room for everybody to participate in this because we need everybody to participate for this to work. And I think that the final message I'd leave is this is a social good. This turns CEOs into whistleblowers. This makes corporations part of the war against corruption and bribery because they have an incentive to be actively involved in stamping it out. Well, that's all the time we have today. And uh, you guys have shared some great insights, really, really interesting conversation. And, and thank you both for your time today. Delilah, thanks very much for inviting me. Yes, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it.
That was Debevoy's partner, Kara Brockmeyer, and former Siemens General Counsel, Peter Solson. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice, and thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.